right, thanks for coming tonight, good to see you, and uh, turn your Bibles if you would, new policy uh, that's going to be instilled here at Bible Baptist Church, from now on Pastor Forsberg's going to have to submit his text, because we're going to James chapter 4 tonight, um, had me worried there, but he was one verse off from where I'm at, so uh, that's alright, it worked out. But that's always, whenever you're the second to go up and the first one picks your passage, it's a little bit scary. And uh, so we'll go to James chapter 4. Uh, ho hopefully uh, you're having a good week. I'm really excited about this weekend. Uh, we have a Valentine's Day banquet on Saturday night. And then we'll, we'll have a real special Sunday. Uh, got, it, it is uh, Valentine's Day on Sunday, so we're going to do some... Uh, some uh, I'm really excited about the message on Sunday about relationships and marriage and all those fun things. So be here and don't miss out on that. James chapter 4, <clears throat> we're talking about grace and uh, different things that grace does in our lives and how we need it every day of our life. Every Christian reaches a point in his life, really many times in our life, where we need revival. We need to be revived from a lethargic attitude, a backslidden condition. We need to come to the point where we're, we, where we're back to the Lord. The, 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 uh, what brings on the need for revival is backsliding, and backsliding is just exactly what it sounds like, sliding back. Instead of going forward, we're sliding back. And so we need to have these times in our life where that sweetness, that closeness to the God can be revived in our life that sometimes just slips away. Have you ever had those days or those weeks where it just seems like God's a thousand miles away? And can I tell you, friend, He doesn't move. We're the ones that move. Uh, and so we need to get back to where we need to, uh, to, to the Lord, to that closeness. I want to examine tonight what revival is, what hinders us from experiencing revival, how it comes, and what the results of genuine revival will be. So, uh, what draws people away from the Lord? It seems absurd, after all that God has done for us, that we would allow anything to draw us away from Him, and yet we all come to the point, again, often in some of our lives, where we need that work of grace to rekindle the passion that we once had for God. I don't know about you, but when I very first became a Christian, uh, I had an excitement like you wouldn't believe when I first came to just, I mean, I was, I was, I couldn't wait to tell somebody and I was starting to tell kids my age. I became obnoxious with talking to kids about uh, their need of salvation and perfect strangers. I had no problem talking to strangers even as a kid. So, uh, but, uh, but there was an excitement there and I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that excitement for the Lord, that newness that comes on. Uh, sometimes... The Word of God that once stirred us loses its interest. We don't have as much interest in the Bible anymore. Uh, little things that we overlooked before uh, can now cause us frustration, anger. When this happens, our love grows cold and our joy is gone and we need revival. And tonight I want to talk about a reviving grace. A reviving grace. The psalmist said it best. Psalm 85.6, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? The result of revival is rejoicing. Happiness, peace, fulfillment, those things come from revival. 
Revival restores the joy of our salvation that we had that moment we were saved. Uh, it was, uh, got to lead a, a lady to Christ last week in my office, and, and it was just, uh, I, there's, there's nothing more exciting than lead somebody to Christ. And just, and uh, you know, it came her turn to pray and couldn't for a moment because she was weeping so hard just about how exciting it was for her to know her, she could be forgiven. And uh, we, we shouldn't lose that in our life. Now, revival is not something that you can schedule. We schedule revival services. We have revival services scheduled for this September. And uh, we have somebody coming. And he's going to come and preach. Uh, and uh, hopefully we will experience it in our life. But you can't really schedule it because uh, it is something that happens not, uh, not because of a meeting. It happens because of our heart. You can be revived without a meeting. And you can go to a meeting and not get revived at all. So it, it's, it's a heart condition. So uh, let's read here James chapter 4 and uh, starting at verse number 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have, you cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. Can I give you a gem here uh, real quick? Uh, look over, it's probably a, across the page, but on and James 5, this has nothing to do with the message, and you're not even going to get charged extra. So this is like that extra free. Elias, verse, uh, James 5, 17. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. You do remember the day when Elias is on the mountain, Elijah's on the mountain, he's got all those uh, false prophets, and uh, they prayed for fire, Elijah prayed for fire. Who prayed more that day, Elijah or the prophets? Who prayed longer? Prophets did. False prophets prayed all day, cut themselves, screamed, cried, jumped around like madmen. Elijah prayed like, I forget, it's something like 20 words and the fire fell. So here, back to James 4.3, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. It doesn't matter how much you pray if you're not praying right. You want to pray right, and then God will answer. So, just a little freebie there. You adulteresses and adulterers. Now this, uh, I'm a preacher. James is writing here, uh, preaching through text. And, I, you know, I always read this verse, and I step back a little bit, and I was like, man, James, you, James is kind of the man for being able to speak this plainly. Because most preachers, and myself included, I'm not going to get up in the pulpit, and I'm not trying to be rude or anything, but this is pretty crude language here. We have language we could use today that's more relevant that I'm not even going to use from the pulpit that he's using here. Uh, you adulterers and adulteresses know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Very plain talk here. Not pulling any punches. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy, but he giveth more grace? There it is. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. So you see the answer for all these issues? Grace. That's what we need. Then verse number 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. And then we heard tonight about verse 8. Um, so the... Revival, our need. Let's look at a few points here. Let's look first at the conflict with revival. Turn your Bibles back one page, James chapter 3, 
verse number 14. <coughs> James 3.14. Because revival, your flesh will fight revival. Your flesh will fight revival with everything it's got. Your flesh doesn't want revival. Uh, look at what it says here, James 3.14. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth, this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. That word sensual is a person wholly dependent on his senses. That's all sensual is. Sensual is if it looks good, if it feels good, if it tastes good, to me I'll do it. No matter what the consequences are, right or wrong, if it feels good, I'll do it. That's sensual living. Now, revival is not guaranteed, and it doesn't come automatically. If you really desire revival in your heart, if you desire to keep that closeness, that, that communion with the Lord that you had when you were first saved, it will not come without opposition. It's going to be hard to maintain, just like we'll learn on Sunday with marriage is the same way. It's not automatic. It takes work. It takes a commitment the devil does not want your love for God to be renewed or to stay on fire for him. He'll do everything in his power to prevent restoration and revival. And how? Right here. It talks about it. These are the conflicts with revival. Uh, believers that have the Holy Spirit living within them, believers that possess a new nature, will still face this conflict. Now, let's look at what some of them are. It talks about strife here. The, James says... Uh, the conflict comes from your lusts. Our lusts is our desires. And this is the desires that work, uh, that, that go against the work that God desires to do in our heart and our life. This is, when we talk about our lust, this is, and again, the Bible, we use the word lust mostly as a sexual or sensual. Uh, the Bible uses lust just as desire. It's just a desire. And so it, we have fleshly desires, and most of the time they're not good. All you need to know is go to a buffet and see what you desire versus what is good. I mean, you don't, you don't usually, I always wonder when I'm going through the, the buffet line, how, how often do they, you know, they're filling the eggs, they're filling the ham, they're filling the cottage cheese. How often do they fill them beets, you think? every? It's probably the same container of beets that was there three weeks ago. They just keep putting the same one out. Uh, we don't desire the good things. We desire the bad things. And that's what it's talking about here. So we have been regenerated through salvation, but you know this, our old nature remains, and it wants what's bad for us. So the unity that is supposed to characterize us as we walk in Christ, it's threatened all the time, and it's often <coughs> broken. The church, uh, Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now, the church's who are getting this letter from James, are experiencing persecution. They, this is a time that James is writing. They're, they're going through some tough times. Many have faced imprisonment. Many have lost their jobs. Many are running for their lives, uh, literally. The frustration that they felt because of their hardship uh, was spilling over into their relationships. If there is strife in your life, if there's a bad relationship with God in your life, if you're allowing sin in your life, it will absolutely manifest itself in your relationships with others. It's going to affect how you get along with the people of God if you're having 
uh, if your relationship with God is cooling. If you have resentment and hostility in your soul, it will manifest absolutely in your relationships. Now, there's, uh, look at the, in, in James 3 here, we read, uh, talks about fighting in the flesh. Uh, it's one place that most, we most expect Christian encouragement is where? At church, amen? I mean, you ought to expect Christian encouragement when you come to church. You ought to expect it to be a positive experience when you come to church. However, here they're finding conflict. The phrase he uses, wars and fightings among you. This word, this word among you means in the church. This is happening among God's people. The word for wars, <coughs> the original word is polemos. We get our word polemic from it. And polemic means of or involving dispute, argumentative, controversial, and what a sad description of Christian relationships. When your heart is not right with God, you find it very easy to get frustrated. You find it very easy to get angry. You find it very easy to be, have a short fuse if your heart's not right with God. And uh, these are the areas that, how, this is how the relationship, this relationship manifests itself this way. And so we need to watch for these things, and that's what James is telling us here. Uh, Christians experiencing this type of discord and conflict need revival. They need to be revived, brought back to the Lord. Now, Galatians chapter 5, if you want to turn there, Galatians 5.16, another reason that we <coughs> have this conflict is not walking in the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so you cannot do the things that you would. Boy, doesn't that describe our life? We want what's not good. We don't want what's good. It's like feeding your growing kids when they're little. They don't want what's good for them. They don't want peas. They don't want beans. They want fries and burgers and the good stuff. Amen? The stuff that tastes good. Pizza. They don't want, you have to make them eat the, the greens and the veggies and all those things. Why? Because we don't want really what's good usually. And that, that, that battle that goes in, on in our hearts and our lives, it's constant. And if you're trying to live for God, you read a verse like this, and you're like, that's me, that's what I'm going through right now. The flesh lusteth against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. They're contrary one to another, so that you cannot do the things that you would. You know what that's talking about there? The question that you ask yourself sometimes, why do I keep doing that? Why did I do that again? Why did I say that again? Why? I, and then you promise, I'll never do that again. And then you do it again. This is what it's talking about. You, the th you cannot do the things you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, fighting and conflict is evidence of walking in the flesh. The verses here in Galatians describe the internal conflict between our spirit, and our flesh. Each one of these is fighting for control. Your flesh wants control, your spirit wants control. And both of them are fighting for control in your life. They'll fight for control until the day you go to heaven. It's, I'm telling you, I, I'm looking forward to heaven and I think of the wonders of heaven and all the things, the, the beauty of it. That, that doesn't, that's not the main thing at all that draws me. The biggest draw I have to heaven is to, to imagine living without sin. Oh, man. 
I can't wait till I don't have to deal with temptation anymore. And what a blessing that'll be. Now, until then, though, we're going to fight that old flesh all the time, all the time. Conflict, conflict. And then there's the selfishness. Second Peter 2.10, But chiefly them that walk after the flesh, in the lust of uncleanness, and despite government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Walking after the flesh produces selfishness. And here's our, we were talking, the uh, pastor was talking about addictions. There's your addiction. That's probably our biggest addiction problem that every single one of us have, selfishness. We live for self. Self is, is above everybody, uh, before everybody, above everything. For many people, most people in the world today probably, self. <coughs> when we are in the flesh, we are, by the very nature of being in the flesh, focusing on what we want. This creates a vicious cycle. The more you're in the flesh, the more selfish you are. The more selfish you are, the more you're in the flesh. Selfishness. James noted here that people are first driven by their own desires, and then they lose control, and then eventually those desires take control of them, and you just become an extremely selfish person. Look at the process of selfishness, the the people that he's writing to, he says they're driven by the desire to have. This phrase uh, basically means a burning, zealous desire. They allowed selfishness into their lives. And again, I didn't have the word on my, in my notes, but he was talking about it earlier. Great way to describe selfishness. It's an addiction. We're addicted to it. I'll give you an example of how you're obsessed with self. If you are in a group just imagine you're in a group of 25 or 30 people and there's a picture taken. And later, you get that picture when you take it to the, to the store and get it developed. We don't do that anymore. When you get it printed out, whatever. You get the picture, you look at it, and you're going to determine is it a good picture or isn't it a good picture and how will you determine it? Come on, you know how you're going to determine it. You're going to look at you. And if you are eyes closed or a weird expression or looking sideways, you're going to say, that's not a good picture. Never mind if the 30 other people might be perfect, but you're not. And so you deem the whole picture bad because you're messed up. That's how we think. We just automatically are like that. We focus on self. We focus on our wants, our desires, and uh, it's just a natural thing. Now, this... The, this uh, desire to have allows selfishness into our lives, taking us further away from God, making us even more miserable because we're not getting what we wanted. Marital conflict, conflicts, family, job conflicts, national conflicts, political, all the result of unsatisfied lust. And then he also talks about envy. Envy. Remember, the word lust, again, is not necessarily talking about sensual passions. We're just talking about desires, selfish desires. And so you have the process of selfishness. And then the product of selfishness, by the way, selfishness is not a victimless crime. You think that selfishness just affects me. It doesn't. It affects everybody around you, too. Just because it starts on the inside doesn't mean it stays on the inside. It's going to affect people around you. The danger of selfishness is that a selfish person is never, ever satisfied. 
You know any selfish people? Well, we're all, again, we're all selfish to an extent. There's some more than others. I know some that are consummately selfish. And uh, this is, getting what they want doesn't satisfy them. They're never satisfied. It makes them still want more. And getting what they want even sometimes seems to make them more miserable. Because the flesh is never satisfied. It is a beast that you cannot feed and it finally says, ah, I've had enough. It's not like that. It wants more and more and more. If you watch filth online, your flesh is not going to be satisfied with just so much. It wants more and it wants more. And it's always going to want more. And so it never satisfies. Selfishness becomes so strong that in our passage we read in James 4, he says you lust and have not, you kill. You kill. That's getting pretty serious. Killing opportunities to serve others. Killing the Lord's work. Selfishness makes us complacent towards spiritual things because we're focused on feeding our flesh. And a selfish person is a miserable person. A selfish person is, a, is a, not a very liked person. I mean, you get around somebody that's really selfish and they're not very pleasant to be around either. Selfishness is a terrible place to get to. And when we, when we, uh, we, we see all throughout the book of James how that is a tool of the devil to take us away from what we need to be. Selfishness will creep into our lives again and again. That's why we need revival again and again and again. lady came to uh, Billy Sunday years ago and said, why do you keep having revivals? You have a revival, and, and then six months later, the church is back to where it was uh, in the beginning. Nothing's changed. And then you have another revival, and then everything's fine for a while, and then they get back to where they were again. Why do you keep having revivals? He says, I'll ask you a question. Why do you keep taking baths? I mean, you get clean, then what happens? You get dirty again, and then you take another bath, and then you get clean again. You see, spiritually, that's what a revival is. It cleans us up, and we need to go back, and we need to go back, and we need to go back. And so we need a revival to purge our hearts of selfishness and sin. Then there's a, a competition uh, for revival. As we've already seen, the devil does not want you to have it. So he's going to fight against it. And when revival starts in your life, he's going to do everything he can to defeat it and to stop it. There's three areas in which we're attempted to trade a real relationship with God for a substitute. One is misplaced prayer. It talks about it a little bit here. We read uh, revival doesn't come unless we pray for it. It's not going to happen because you manufacture it. Revival is not a decision. <coughs> it's not a self-help decision. Revival, as he talks about here, is grace. It's grace from God. God needs to do the work in our heart, in our life. The, word, uh, the Greek word for uh, this passage here where it says, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. <coughs> that word ask amiss comes from one Greek word, uh, kokos. It means miserable, improper, or sick. And when our prayers are based on evil or selfish desires, there will be no revival. You ask and you don't get it because you ask amiss. Asking for the wrong reasons. Instead of praying to God, God, what do I need to change? What do I need to shore up in my life rather than praying out of a selfish desire? Uh, in my flesh, I have asked God for things that could have damaged my life had they been granted. I bet the same is true for you. And sometimes, we talked about this last week in on Sunday morning, sometimes God says, that's not good for you at this time. And 
So I'll say no. And then later we can say, whew, thank you, Lord. That was a close one. Uh, he, we need to ask his will for our life. Wrong praying reveals a selfish heart that will prevent revival. And then misplaced values. Uh, turn over to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. This, he's also talking about <coughs> the world. Here James is talking about the world. And then John talks about 1 John 2.15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, James, if we go back to our text, uses a very blunt metaphor when he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. Now, you go throughout the Bible and Old Testament, God bound himself to Israel and, uh, in a covenant relationship similar to marriage. When Israel turned to idolatry, God referred to it as adultery. Uh, Israel committed spiritual unfaithfulness when they went after idols. And that's a strong word, adulterers and adulteresses. And uh, it's, it's, it's something we ought to consider. Today, you know, as one preacher put it this way, the, the world has got so churchy and the church so worldly that if you put them in a bag, shake them up, pour them out, you wouldn't know who's who anymore. And there's a lot of truth to that. There's not that much of a, you know, standards disappear and we just kind of meld together. And James says, if you love the world, love of the Father's not in you. You can't love the world and love God. And so, and then he calls them adulterers. If you go after the, if, if you're loving the world, you go after the things of the world, adulterers and adulteresses. Strong language he's giving here. wonder if they had a confidence vote for James after he wrote this. But that's some strong language, and, but yet it's true. Now, in Jewish culture, a couple was betrothed to be married before they were married, like J Joseph and Mary were before Jesus was born. And it was just as serious as marriage without the yet physical relationship. But it, the picture right now of the church, we're in that betrothal period. Jesus is in heaven preparing a place for us, John 14. Now uh, we're on earth waiting on his return. But we have to separate ourselves from the world unto Christ, our bridegroom. And so there's that picture as well. If we fall in love with the world, we are committing spiritual adultery against the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what James is telling us here. Strong words, but it's something that we need to consider. And then misplaced friendship, and I'll close here for tonight. Christians who want to have the right relationship with God cannot be friends with the world. Can't happen. It's, it's that age-old problem where we try to hold hands with the world, try to hold hands with God at the same time, not realizing they're going opposite directions and then we're wondering why our life's all torn apart. We can't, can't have both. Got to choose. Can't walk the fence. Walk the fence, you walk funny. It just doesn't work. Got to choose a side. And so... This is important for us to do, and he's making it very clear here in James, in our text again, uh, that we are, that the world is enmity with God. So you cannot be a friend of the world and be friends with God. Now, this, by the way, <coughs> when he's saying world, this is not uh, the physical earth. The world here, the, the word is cosmos. It means an apt and harmonious arrangement or constitution. We're talking about the man-centered 
system in this present age. That's what the world is. And we can't be friends with it. We can't be wrapped up in it. We've got to separate ourselves from it unto Christ. That's why James says to befriend the world is to become God's enemy. Now, we can take this into Hebrews chapter 11. <coughs> we were talking about this in Sunday school, actually, but when Moses, come to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses, the Bible says, was a friend of God. And the reason he was so close to God is because he came to the point where he refused the world. And friends, we live in a time where a lot of churches, you can have both. You don't have to separate yourself from the world. You can, be, you can drink, party, go to bars, and go to church on Sunday, and everything's fine. It's not fine. But there are some things we have to separate ourselves from. We can't love the world and love God at the same time. And so, like Moses refused uh, to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, which by doing that was rejecting the world and choosing Christ, choosing God, we have to refuse some things in our life. We can't just live how we want to live. We can't just do what we want to do. We have to, there has to be a refusal of the world uh, for us to have the proper relationship with God. And that's one way toward revival. You want to re revive your relationship with the Lord? Start cutting things out that take you from Him. You know, we, it's a problem. It, three, four hours of television a day and five minutes in your Bible, you're not going to be spiritually victorious. You're just not going to be. Why? You're befriending to the world and not to God. Uh, and we could go lots of different examples. We, we have to ask ourselves, and there's a, there's a note I wrote in my Bible, actually, um, right next to verse 4 there. I think this was when Dave Young was here. And he touched on this verse, and he made a statement, and I wrote it down. You are, you are as close to God as you want to be. That's profound. But you're as close to God as you want to be. Because if you want to be closer, he's there. Draw an eye to me, I'll draw an eye to you. He's there for it. The problem is, do we really want revival? That's the, that's the big question, because it's there for us. Do we want to draw closer to God. Do we want revival or not? That, in fact, that song's in our hymnal. Do we really want revival? That's a great question. You want me to sing the whole thing? Probably not. But uh, it's a good question to ask ourselves. Father, thank